This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to our holiday season. This is one of our favourite episodes from 2016. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions Monday Community Show on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show is called Lifeline for a Suicidal World, but I promise you it'll be quite exciting. It won't be grim and uh, gloomy. We're really thinking about the lifeline that we need to make for the suicidal world. Around 5.30, we'll be talking to Blair Polisi, who is the CEO of 350.org. Their new election time campaign is called Pollution Free Politics. But first we have psychologist Lynn Bender in the studio. She's the former head of Lifeline Melbourne, thus Lifeline for the Suicidal World. Um, also in the studio is author Deborah Hart, who wrote Guarding Eden. And if we're lucky, her fellow climate angel, Liz Connor, will pop in later. So Lynn, yes. suicide. The Pope has said to us we are at the limit of suicide and he even said it's a strong word. Our world is on a suicidal course unless we pay attention and pull out of this nosedive into the sixth extinction. Could you tell us what is suicidal about the way we are behaving? Well, you can be consciously or unconsciously suicidal in denial that what you're doing will lead to a terrible disaster. But basically, we've con- we haven't really stopped our emissions. In fact, they're the highest they've been. Um, and we have a government that I think t- pretends to be doing something, but we all can see they're not doing much. And we are in denial that that matters. We're trying to say, look, it'll be all right. It'll it'll go and. If we keep going this way, we're part of the world, we're going to destroy our Earth, basically. It's not alarmist, it's not extreme to say that. Um, We're already at one degree. The supposed safe level, in quotes, is 1.5. So how much leeway does that really give us? And I think what I would... When individuals behave suicidally, you you talk to them about it and you say, you can see there's self-destruction. What's the part of them that wants to live? What's a part of them, you know, is ambivalent about what mm. they're doing? Just don't get so close to the microphone, oh, okay. that's what I'm saying. Well, yeah, well, from your experience at Lifeline, I, mm. it's a huge leap to say to society, like population yes. mental health. Yes. But um, I, I'm wondering if you think that um, 
Well, years ago, I used to think that the climate crisis would be, you know, taken on board by the government. We'd have carbon rationing. We'd go on to a sort of wartime footing. I'm thinking of the Second World War, and I'm rather enjoying the, the soundtrack playing through my head of how nice it would be to be all growing fig tree gardens and all of that. I just thought it would be immediate, but it never happened. And all around me, I see people carelessly admitting carbon, people in the rich world. You know, we fly everywhere for holidays. We light up the city for white nights. Yes. I was caught in the white nights the other night. Yes. 500,000 people in Flinders Street, apparently. I couldn't move. Yes. It was amazing, but they're not there for anything more than just to see the lights, like somewhere in India for the Mela. Yes. And also we're logging the forests that draw down carbon, so we're acting as if we're completely oblivious. And I wonder if people are... There's a kind of death wish in this. If are they acting as if there is no tomorrow? Do you think they really think that? Well, for some people who know about climate change, they feel impotent. So they think the only thing they can do is live... To the best of their, or to the greatest pleasure, receive the greatest pleasure they can. Currently, um, I spoke to the baker today. He's a, I, I said, oh, uh, he asked me what I was doing. I mentioned I was coming in here, and he said, oh, the seasons have changed. Actually, there are no real seasons. And the the girl who um, helps him said, we need to rename the seasons. There isn't an autumn and a spring anymore. So I think if you you can extrapolate that a lot of ordinary people are noticing changes and picking it up, but feeling powerless. Mm. Well, we get headlines like mm. uh, climate science to be gutted as CSIRO swings the job axe. You know, the media are trying yes. to stir up a bit of excitement about this, at least about the CSIRO, and then that caused the, CIO, uh, the uh, CEO of the CSIRO, his name's Larry Marshall, he said, oh, look, there's too much emotion in this debate. Um, he said it sounded more like religion than science. Mm. And I wonder, what's going on? Are we being waylaid by emotion or not? Well, it's not unreasonable to be emotional about uh, a devastating situation. We are actually similarly as though we're on board the Titanic and we... We can see the iceberg and others are still dancing. So, of course, we'd be um, crying and screaming and saying, watch out for the Titanic. And as Alan Alder said today, he started um, a process of trying to explain climate science to people. If you say there's a flood coming into that room and no one does anything, do you stop or do you keep saying it? And, in fact, people want to not believe it, so that's part of it. Mm. They feel powerless, that's another part of it. And so they, they pick up on the idea that maybe it's not as bad as everyone's saying. There's always been Armageddon threats, that's mm. religion. Mm. Religion's been the famous Armageddon um, uh, per, uh, way of... Uh, that's always been their way of frightening the masses. So um, I think when they call it a religion... They know that people are very serious about this and very committed to it. And I think it can become like that when you actually feel you don't want the earth to perish, you don't want the animals to die, and you don't want future generations to live very impoverished lives, mm -hmm. uh, disastrous lives. I've been trying to write a novella about a few decades hence in the future and trying to imagine what it would actually be like living there and it's not terribly scientific mm. but imagine if there's uh, constant storms very serious storms like the one in Fiji everyone's the, the latest mm. worst uh, storm or mm. the hottest year imagine if that's constant and our food supplies dry up and we have fires as we had in Tasmania that's been burning mm. for 
days and you you know th- it's not even really big news that they've brought in 250 firemen to camp there to fight the fires mm. that's unprecedented so um we we're sort of ignoring that because the scarier it gets the more hopeless we feel and we really need leadership mm. we need people who can speak as the pope does and then act on that well what leadership would give a lifeline to this sort of suicidal feeling of we can't do anything well i think as soon as you feel there's something you can do something constructive you feel a whole lot better um as soon as you i think also working collectively so you feel you've got people around you who support you in in facing this is extremely important that we are all in this together and it's not just you and i who feel it Mm. at the moment it's everyone's problem and I think facing an unbearable truth really requires a lot of support and that is often the antidote to suicide. That becomes, yes, I'm going to try. Right, well, we'll bring in Deborah now. We've got Deb Hart with us and um, she, uh, the group she co-founded is called Climb Acts and I think their spectacles cut through to the emotions which have numbed us on into this suicidal path you know they they are not with larry marshall saying all oh, this is all too emotional and so on they they allow the emotion and evoke it with their spectacles so thanks deb for coming in thanks, tell us Vivian. you've just been to paris and you know i think on the front page of the age some listeners will remember there was a photo of an angel in front of the um, eiffel tower but on the internet there are hundreds and hundreds of really beautiful photos of the angels are popping up everywhere in paris and you must have had a, a extraordinary time there very emotional time in amongst all of this um yeah yeah it was it was extraordinary and it was um it was very intense so we were kind of popping up everywhere we were Mm. trying to make the most um of the opportunities and to do some really um key actions like we blockaded ng on behalf of the latrobe valley Mm. we um uh yeah we did we didn't just do sort of pretty stuff. No. Um, but, yes, you are right that the spectacle aims to cut through, to get to people's deep emotions before they have a chance to bring up all of their politics and their denial. And basically they look and say, oh, how beautiful. What What is this? Mm. And then particularly with the angels in Paris, um, you know, you've, you've basically got this this situation that is so diabolical um the whole threat that security would become the issue rather than climate change and the fact that it actually enabled an opportunity to have a much deeper discussion around the links between the globalized fossil fuel industry and terrorism climate change you know it actually in a, a really horrific way was um an ideal opportunity to Mm. to draw those links but it yeah, we, we just really didn't know what to expect. But I had lived there in 2009 when I started writing and mm. researching Guardian Eden because I'd been a climate activist for quite a long time mm. and I knew myself well enough to mm. know that I really actually had to be away from Australia, otherwise I would just mm. go to things and I wouldn't you know, write the book. I really, really <laughs> yeah. wanted to write. So I watched the way that... Um, civil society movements basically en masse like never seen before were uh, responded to in Copenhagen there was a complete lockdown halfway through that conference and most of the NGOs were locked out so France was pretty aware that this was going to be really 
um, massive. Mm. And the talks about the red line and the barricading in of delegates if they didn't come up with an agreement that was suitable. Um, so they were really anxious. And several weeks before we left, we were all requested to fill in permits to apply to attend public rallies. Mm. That's unprecedented. Mm. So it was pretty clear that the government was taking a kind of cynical um, approach to mass um, protesting around mm. climate change during COP21. Then when the terrorist attacks happened, they, um, yeah, they stepped that up. But then with my other hat on, having worked in public organisations like the National Gallery of Victoria, I, mm. I can say that public safety is such a huge issue and I really admired the way they pressed ahead and undertook the measures that they believed would enable every, every leader and delegate to attend as planned. Because if that hadn't happened and we didn't have this agreement, I think we really would be suicidal. Mm -hmm. I think there really would be. Mm. Yes, it's easy to say, look, it's not enough because we all know it's not enough, but it, it was a huge achievement. It's a huge logistic achievement to get all those people there in that city and everyone to be safe yeah. because, um, you know, <clears throat> I, I heard you say at another forum that people came up and embraced you in the subway and people just welcomed you as angels, but there are also yeah. a lot of fascists and, you know, uh, Awful people really just lurking in society, in any society, not just in France, but they were under a state of emergency. You must have been frightened that you'd be getting a kick in the head. It, yeah, and it's what we, we were a bit. We weren't quite sure what to um, expect, but I do have a lot of close friends in, in France and in Paris and in the arts community especially. Mm. And, yes, it was so moving to have people stop us on the street, particularly mm. women. Women would stop. I mean, one woman in the um, metro just started crying and just sat, you know, thanking us so much for coming you know to share this you know really momentous time with them but such a deeply sad time and that was really really moving mm. but people just generally and we we actually were we kind of were and I feel a little bit um awkward about this we angel bombed all over Paris I mean the first couple of times it was a really pleasant surprise but after that we pretty much knew that if we showed up in these you know women in pretty costumes in Paris yeah we were going to get a lot of attention but the media just would swarm and my Paris we didn't have time to look at um news but um we really were all over the news mm. in Europe and and Asia, and so images, live images, um, crosses to the news where you know we would be there, and and that was really exciting. Like mm. My French friends were all saying, "Oh my God, you know, we're so proud." I wonder what you take from that because it seems to me there's a great hunger there to be saved. People want to be protected. They want to be saved. They want you to be being a message that it will be all right. And yes, it was an issue for us getting the secular message across mm. that we are messengers in the true sense of angels being, um, you know, portending dangers, being the protectors of children and the mm. vulnerable rather than a religious cult. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. We were really worried about appearing in front of churches, but hey, yeah. you know, it's Paris. It's kind of hard to, <laughs> to avoid that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But yeah, it, it, um, it, there were a number of levels on which it did 
uh, speak to people. Yeah. So yeah, we were very ple- very pleased with the result. Tell, and tell us about the red line. It was worthwhile. The red line, uh, you know, was in all the photos. This beautiful big ribbon for listeners. It was a, I don't know, about a meter wide. They were all holding up these lovely angels, just holding this red line. And in some of them, they had red paint on their faces and red feathers in their wings. Now, and that mm-hmm. red line also turned up at the Pilago, which we'll talk a bit about later. But what what was it? What did that symbolise? Well, that was the red line that all the the environment groups decided would be the theme for day 12, D12. So, which was the day after, it ended up being the day that the agreement was, was read out, but it was officially, it was the day after the, the end of the conference. And there were going to be, there was going to be a huge massive rally in the streets, which then, of course, the government was um, prohibiting, and then they were coming back and forth. And I should just say here, too, that we're very Anglo-Saxon in our approach, and the French are a bit different. You know, laws are... They're they're important, but you know there's a lot of more grey area than there is in an Anglo-Saxon approach. You know that that's not a good idea. You shouldn't do that. Is kind of the way my French friends try and kind of explain the way that laws like the the ones the state of emergency emergency ones were were implemented. So yeah, there's a kind of different culture here, mm. and I thought that the um, security, and particularly on day twelve, because that was massive. There were about ten thousand people in the streets and. The angels did actually um, end up leading a march that went from the Champs-Élysées around about five kilometres down um, through Trocadero and then across the, the bridge over the Seine uh, to the Eiffel Tower. The bridge was occupied for more than an hour as well. I don't know how far that reached in the news, but that um, that was pretty major. Mm. And the red line basically symbolising a point at which we cannot cross. Mm. It's not just physical boundaries, um, chemical and biological, you know, literally the laws of nature, but also social boundaries in terms of justice and in terms of, of what's already occurring in, in the indigenous um, communities around the world, under underprivileged communities, the future generations, you know, the, this is social boundaries that cannot be crossed. And that's why it came to the Pilaga, because it, one, um, I love words, and from Paris to the Pilaga seemed to have a good ring to it, but also because it, we were carrying it to say, this project, like so many hundreds of others before it, crosses the line. Right. You can't do it. So it's actually a symbol I'm hoping will really get out and really get out to the front line because, you know, we can go to these conferences and you can listen to all of this theory, but at the end of the day, that's the extraction point. And that's the one time I can say in three years that we were arrested. Mm. I mean, we've had a really hard time getting arrested in the city, right. and I'm really glad now because it enables an opportunity to really get arrested where it really mattered yeah. at an extraction site. Well, I saw the photos of that, and we had um, uh, Julie Lyford last week from the Coalsium Gas Group and uh, Gloucester, right. and they'd had a victory, right. yeah, and right. she was there with the nurses and midwives, and they were not arrested, and she said, look, she thought it would bring down the state government if the police had been seen arresting nurses in their scrubs. You know, they're all frontline workers, and they know each other. But you had quite a bit of an encounter with the police. Just tell us a bit, because we're talking about psychology and emotions and so on today. You put your bodies on the line. What emotions did you detect as the police arrested you and later when you were talking to them at the police station? That it was the last thing they wanted to do as well, to be honest. And I felt, um, I actually felt most empathy for them because they put two young women... um, Responsible, so that'd be a pretty tough gig in such a patriarchal kind mm. of system. Um, they, the, 
Yeah, my sense of it, and I, I suppose I do take an approach that the authorities are there to, they, they have to, you know, they have to follow the law. And if people break the law, no matter how stupid it is, that's their job. And, you know, not so long ago we had laws that enabled, you know, some humans to own other humans and exploit them mercilessly till their death. So, you know, laws change and, the, and clearly this is an appalling situation that our laws actually protect the people who are destroying the ecosystems that we all rely on and that the people trying to protect them are, the, are you know, the ones being being um, persecuted it's just outrageous so we have to keep fighting this law until it's changed but the but the police really are in the middle mm -hmm. and i was quite upset because um uh, a couple of activists you, you have to kind of wonder sometimes if there are plants you know we know that the plants do arrive on blockades but you know to be filming and very close to the camera saying pretty horrible things to the police things that we would never say um and so that recording's unusable mm. we are actually doing a voiceover um interview to accompany the the actual footage but it was unusable because of one of the activists was really saying, you know, like horrible things to this young woman saying, you know, I'd like to meet you in a back alley. And, oh, yeah. you know, things that, look, no matter what you feel about the police, even strategically, um, we're going to need them. And uh, when things get really stressful, we know from just a glimpse in history that they can be, you know, pretty um, hardcore heavy-handed so why you know why give them ammunition to hate us now yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make sense strategically from a humane level or the humanitarian level yeah. it doesn't make sense to me at all um but also strategically yeah, I don't think those police want to be doing that work. They want to be catching criminals, you know, real criminals, well, and, and keeping people safe, I would think, in the society they're at. But they don't want to be out in the forest arresting middle-class people who've come all the way there to dress up as angels. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and we were between 50 and 75, yeah, well, so, you, you know, there was yeah. that dimension too. But can I say that we did spend more, um, about four hours back in, um, in lockup, and they were very, we had very uh, interesting conversations with all of the you know with the police and they were all extremely courteous and extremely and you know one of them the sergeant said look we we're treated like bits of rubbish lying around the place you know there is absolutely no mm. respect for us whatsoever the fact that we are actually just doing our jobs and we feel that there's a community falling apart some really deep issues um violent crime mm. drugs and they're out there day in day out you know literally <laughs> trying to take you know like you said yeah. Um, well-meaning people away from protecting uh, a forest and a major re recharge zone for the, for the Great Artesian Basin. Well, we just happen to have someone else in the studio. Liz hasn't uh, arrived yet, and this is an old friend of mine who is an actor, and she and I go back to the Vietnam moratorium days, which makes us very antique, but it's, um, there was a scene in that when we used to march down the street. There was one scene. I was just walking in Russell Street the other day, and I remembered it. We were all dressed up in these black pajamas like Viet Cong, and we had this routine. It was all quite disciplined. We'd fall down. The bombers would come and bomb us, and we'd fall down dead. Then we'd stand up again, and we'd keep marching. We were part of the march, but it was this street theatre, which is sort of what you're doing. 
Then we'd fall down again, bombs, but then we'd come to Russell Police, uh, Street Police Station, and they were on strike at the time. And we suddenly whipped up these banners that said, more pay for police, more pay for police, and we shouted that out. And they were all just standing there looking bemused. I'll never forget that because it was such good PR, <laughs> getting them on our side, <laughs> more pay for them. But then, Meg, later, could you just tell us briefly what happened to you? Because something awful happened to her. This is just to show you how dangerous it is. Yes, well, we were doing um, quite physical um, theatre, running down the streets and doing turns and flying wedges, and um, it was pretty exhausting. It was very hot in those black pyjamas and under the masks, because we had facial masks. So after about oh, an hour, and, and you couldn't scratch, it was itchy under the mask because you couldn't reach it, you know. So I sat down on the curb of Swanson Street and... Flinders Street, I think it was, trying to get my breath back, and I wasn't in that particular sketch, so I was just sitting there, and I pushed the mask back on the top of my head, and this old lady came out of me with an umbrella, and she she hit me and stabbed me with the point in the, in the small of my back several times, and said, bloody communist, you're a communist, you're a bloody communist, and she kept stabbing me, and I couldn't, you know, and for, the woman who um, who was in charge of the theatre, Betty Burstall, she, um, she was a, a large woman, she was wonderful, Betty, she was a real earth mother, and she <laughs> She came over and she grabbed the, the old lady's umbrella and, and almost broke it in half, which gave me a chance to get off the curb and run and join my mates. <laughs> well, there you are. So this is, this is good that now we're having this climate street theatre. I hope we'll have some more of it soon because this is gets the public engaged in yeah. that way because I don't blame that old woman. We did have young men over there. People got very emotional, but it was that... Dramatisation of it was just great. We had Meg here to tell That's us. It's hilarious, though, because I thought there was going to be like a story about the police and, you know, <laughs> this old lady with an umbrella. That's no, hilarious. <laughs> Let's go back to Paris just because Liz hasn't come, so we have a bit more time for you to tell us about going to Paris and locking up the company, which we know in Australia is GDF Sewers, but in France it's a state partially state-owned company, I think, by the French government. It's called NG now, and you went and locked them up. Why did you do that? And in what, you know, you said it was for the Latrobe Valley people, and and how did you do it? Well, uh, it was planned. It was planned um, long before we went to Paris. Um, some of the elements... Um, yeah, were a little bit complicated when we got there, but we did we did aim to blockade um, main entrances um, for as long as we could. And NG had become a major sponsor of COP21, and we thought that was really outrageous. And uh, there were was evidence that they were spending around about 250 million euros on lobbying to reduce um, ambitions for emission reduction targets whilst they were refusing to pay the $18 million in in out-of-pocket costs that were borne by the CFA, the Community Fire Authority, after, you know, they had um, spent, um, what was it, um, how many days? 44 days? 44 days. Yeah, yeah. 44 days, 7,000 voluntary firefighters mm. to put out a fire that they were subsequently, by an inquiry, found to have been responsible for. And 11 deaths. The, the report suggesting that 11 deaths were directly uh, related to the fire had also come out in kind of divine timing, literally like within a day before the day that we thought we really actually have to do this one we don't want to miss this one so it was really great and um uh arguably 
one of my favorite things. I like really strategic direct action mm. personally. I think it's really important to go and do beautiful things and there were some beautiful things that we did and some beautiful things I really wished we'd done because Climb Art is another I'm mm. co-founder of Climb Art mm. and I don't know if you remember seeing those incredible glaciers, so these incredible glaciers that had been brought um, down from the Arctic and were put in front of the Pantheon. They're originally going to be in the La Republique but that turned into a shrine for the people who'd lost their lives in the terrorist attacks. So it was really emotional. Mm. Anyway, I had plans for the angels to be part of, a, mm. you know, a filming and photographing a, a shoot there, which would have been incredible. Mm. But we couldn't do everything. But, yes, so back to back to NG, that was really great and... Um, so I think we need to follow it up. You surrounded the building. Did you talk well, with no, any of the strategically, staff? Well, there weren't that many of us, so we went to mm. each door. Oh, yeah. We went to strategic doors, and we were letting people, um, we were letting people out. We just weren't letting people back in. Um, the plain clothes, clothes cop was there, and she, uh, you know, they were all reasonable. And even when the riot police showed up, which was after about three hours, and I can tell you it was freezing. It was about three degrees and really in quite a wind tunnel. And there were two two buildings that kind of faced one another over a courtyard. So we were sp- spread fairly thin. Mm. Um, but, it, yeah, we managed to pretty much lock down the building for three hours. And the plainclothes police were there. And then the riot police came. And they just basically managed to take over one door um, and uh, then we knelt in front of them and gave a speech about why we were there, which was, um, you know how the Occupy Melbourne does, you know, the, mm-hmm. the microphoning? Um, so that was really effective. It was really resonating. And so you were telling the French people what yeah. had happened in the Latrobe Valley and how this company has been so well, criminally negligent, really. Exactly. It? And we were calling on them to shut down their fossil fuel um, operations to, you know, that they, uh, to end the hypocrisy. Yeah. You know, you say you want renewable energy. Well, let's see it. Let's see it com- community driven. Yeah. Let's see you be part conference. of that. They were sponsoring that big conference as well. Yeah. Mm. But also, Let's not be naive too. So no. French have French would really wanted an agreement too because nuclear is you know nuclear is filthy and has you know mm. a zillion terrible problems as well. But in terms of emissions, it's lower. And they, of course, that's their coal industry is the nuclear industry. Mm. So the French government, um, yeah, they, yeah, it's interesting. Okay. So, All right, well, so Engie's not going to close down any time soon. We spoke to But Richard. they changed their name. Can I say they changed yeah. their name from GDF Suez yeah. to Engie in yeah. between the Hazelwood Mine Fire well, and COP21? Yes, but we had Tom Doig last week who said they'll also probably go bankrupt because they're mm-hmm. such a diversified and they change their name, they change all the ownership, and it's quite easy yeah. to bankrupt one little court, corner of your business and, and you walk away in all exactly. the liability to the, rehabilitate that mine and to pay back for the damage, health damage. It's shocking. And that's one thing they have found too is that wasn't the Hazelwood, they found it's in the initial inquiry, was that their bond was like, Pathetic, wasn't it? Something like 52 million. I thought it was even less. But anyway, that's nothing. So the first thing we ought to do is actually get the money off these companies right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, look, 
Um, we're going to move on now. Um, we're going to have Blair Polisi in 10 minutes, so I'd like to talk a bit more now about the climate movement. I went to a talk by David Spratt the other night in Melbourne. Talks on every night, listeners, if you get involved, you know, you just need to start looking around for these very interesting talks, and I'll announce a few at the end too for next week. But David Spratt was talking about the climate movement, and he said we, said we need to focus on what we can do together. He emphasised that word together. He said the big NGOs like Greenpeace and, you know, conservation so, oh, what are they ACF and all those different ones he said there's a problem because they've all got their brand and they've all got their actions 350 dot another you know they're all very mobilized and dynamic but they don't have much in common with each other and, and there's nothing we do together except have a big rally well Australia had the biggest number of people while you were at the conference a hundred thousand people plus got together for a climate rally but there's no kind of um, ongoing project or demand or you know thing that we can work together and i wonder does this bother you or is there something more organic at play perhaps lynn could tell us first. well i think one of the things we're such a huge i mean we're billions on earth right we, we try to move we're like a juggernaut mm. i think that there's going to be a lot of splitting in individual actions mm. and that no, nothing too small nothing too large in a way mm. because it can be very powerful each person's action and whatever they can do if you think of Rosa Parks yeah um that you know that Mandela I mean he inspired a lot of people but he was a leader so I don't, I don't want I don't feel I think it makes it too hard to say we all have to get together mm. but we certainly need to support each other mm not be going against each other and I think there is a level of that going on but it's interesting because it's more of a female way to be cooperative mm. and it's more of a male way to be oh I'm doing this this is mine and individualistic yeah. and and that's the what what's making it's caused our problem really mm. it's a very masculine style of you know let's let's rape the earth let's dig up the coal where we're, we're acting we want the now we and and the so when they accuse climate uh, people, climate people who mm. care about the climate, of being emotional, it's almost like they're saying, you're like silly women. Mm. And, of course, we don't think much of what women <laughs> do. Um, they're all emotional. They've got that estrogen. We've got <laughs> testosterone. So it, it, Jung would say we have to value the female, and he would say that, the female energy, mm. the energy of connectedness. So, yes, we do need to connect more but not necessarily as a monolith, not necessarily as a great gargantuan... Single project. Yeah, project. I think that's asking too much and it it will dilute it. I think we... Um, Paris is... That's one of the problems with Paris. It's so big. So I think all the individual actions that are happening are really excellent mm. and they're creating a different paradigm for how we live on the earth, really. Um, Deb, do you want to say something about that? Um, I agree. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that whole patriarchal system, the dominance and control and the ways in which that is so damaging to, to men and women, like well, the ecosystems that we all rely on. But um, something that's going to come out of Paris, which is a bit exciting, and here's a plug for it. Um, do you remember the children's messages that we, we took? Mm -hmm. We took this campaign, and it was driven by a 13-year-old boy named Joseph who had uh, written this letter, and because I had um, recently written Guardian Eden, his mum, Susan, who is the, um, the angel who sings with us, um, the extraordinary voice, and they were at the rally in Melbourne, which was just 
incredible. Can I also just sidetrack for a sec to say it was so wonderful being in Paris and hearing over and over that the biggest rally in the world was in Melbourne. It's like, well, we just felt so proud. Anyway, so that um, was driven by this 13-year-old boy who just wrote a letter to Tony Abbott and to other leaders, and um, and he just wasn't sure, you know, really what else to do with it so it was that was the foundation of the idea to take the letters to paris we're now going to actually extend it to a keep your promise social media campaign and once a week on sunday evenings we're going to release one of the letters from the whole cop 21 um, collection but also encourage more letters from young people so it'd be just kind of like a drip feed and we'll be tagging um leaders domestically as well as internationally in in the um in the social media campaign um andrew laird who's like a complete social media master he's he's going to um, help with that so we're really really looking forward to that i think that has great promise but again it's collaborative it's like anyone can do it it doesn't have to have ownership we don't have ownership certainly of it if people would like to send the letters to climax we can put them up on on a like a common album but we're not going to regard this as ours our campaign it's a it's an opportunity to kind of bring together any one who has young children or you know young people in their lives and want to hear use their capacity to get the messages heard and can i say it's a little bit like the tactic for guardian eden written for um adolescents because they're uniquely gifted at challenging grown-ups and they clearly have a right to a future Mm. so on so many levels i feel like they're the best voices to be heard now we're creating these problems we're exacerbating them we have a responsibility and nothing really angers me more than to hear people say oh yes well young people they have such great ideas and you know they'll they'll come up with solutions what that's just that's just outrageous i mean as a psychologist what would you say to that this is mean oh it's very uncaring and very um passing the buck and and it's just it's just amazingly uncaring that we can be contemplating what's happening to the earth right now and not even considering our own children and grandchildren that are before us that we can't even say it's way in way in the beyond how you can not feel bad about that um how um malcolm turnbull can cuddle his grandson and be supporting coal yeah Mm. so the incongruence the split screen of it the is is amazing psychopathic isn't it really yes. well just before we, uh, we we're going to have to uh, blair polisi coming in a moment but i've i worry about young people too and i happen to meet someone at sustainable living festival and i've just got a bit tiny little comment she made to me she's uh from malaysia she's from the penang green council and she was all she had a lovely business card and she was all gung-ho about how they go around door knocking and they do educational forums and fairs mm. to get people in malaysia or in penang to you know save electricity and water and food she says food heaven there but they waste a lot of food and have a lighter footprint but then here's how she feels let's listen to miss sue personally i feel quite pessimistic yeah yeah and every time if i think of the future of the earth or the planets i feel like i want to cry but um since i already started uh, working for the environment and engaging people and then i must I have to be positive about the changes. Yes. 
So that was Miss Sue. Mm. What do you think about her? I feel like crying. Well, I think deep down we all do. And when I talk to my colleagues who have worked in this for at least 10 years now, deep down they're very, very sad because... We've been grappling with this for a long time and facing it ourselves. Amongst a lot of people are facing it. And we're not seeing the shift. And, you know, the, the decade of action, another decade's passed where we haven't done anything. Yeah. And so, you know, it's extraordinarily sad. And I think that... Um, it's realistic to be sad and to still keep trying, though, mm. because a lot's going to be lost whatever we manage to turn around now. That's real. Well, she was she was very highly educated. Mm. She told me the, the number of degrees she had, and, and it, this was a sort of environmental job, and I thought probably there's a whole new generation of people with environmental sort of jobs, but they're locked in because they're not able to process, uh, protest and lock on as, mm. as say, people in my generation can. You know, if you've retired, you don't have to worry about your professional reputation mm. any longer. You could go, I could go and lock myself onto some machinery. It wouldn't harm anybody. It wouldn't harm my future for example but young people can't do that and so I feel they're locked into doing these sort of middle range things mm. which which uh, are not going to create the change that they want to see mm. any more comments um yeah it's it's incredibly unfair and we have all these environmental regulations which are basically all designed to enable industry continu to continue destroying as it is um, but to create the perception that somehow there's some kind of management of it and yes that the very people who know the most are the ones who are being expected to enable that mm. enable that highly destructive careless reckless system psychologically I, I can imagine it taking an enormous toll Mm. Yes. Well, let's the message from all of that, I suppose, is to get active, which that young woman was. She'd come mm. all the way from Penang to here to, to learn from other people about... She thought it was a lot freer here. She loved the Sustainable Living Festival, all this mm. kind of cross-fertilisation of ideas, and she didn't get the feeling that so many people didn't care. <laughs> I hated to dismay her <laughs> behind the Sustainable Living family. <laughs> anyway, look, we're going to talk to Blair Police a bit. We'll come to back to some of these issues just at the end. Um... Have we got time for a piece of music? Mm. And this I spent the evening with the radio. Has your subscription lapsed? We want you back. Spend more than the evening with us. Night with us. Subscribe to 3CR and get excited. Call 9419 8377 or donate online 3cr.org.au. Let's get back together. It'll feel so good. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show and we've got Blair Polisi on the phone. She's the CEO of 350.org and she's somewhere in the Hunter Valley, New South Wales. Blair, how, are you there? I am. Hi, how are you, Vivian? You're sounding very good. I'm fine, thank you. Um, I know you're planning a new campaign to get fossil fuel money out of federal politics and um, we've just been talking tonight about how the world seems to be on a suicidal path and using more coal, oil and gas 
when we've been told to quit. So what's the angle of this new campaign focused on the election? Sure. Let me know if you can hear me okay, Vivian. I can. On the, on the, along the road. Um, yeah, it, it's a real obvious ask, which is if we sign the Paris Accord and we have a commitment to lower our emissions significantly along with the rest of the world, we simply can't keep building new fossil fuel plants, uh, coal mines, gas projects, exploring for oil, etc. But we are take our politicians are taking significant money from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, this, the way we looked at it when we did research, all publicly accessible information, uh, we found that there were subsidies to the industry of about 7.7 billion uh, in a financial year. So that's what we expect to happen in this financial year. So that's about two thousand dollars in handouts uh, per per politician uh, in a in a three year kind of you know summation of time. And you know what is that doing? It means that we keep going for new fossil fuel licenses and approvals, and we are not looking at the solutions and the alternatives that we need to have. Well, it doesn't sound like a very good deal to me. Do you, do you think the government is being reckless with our economy? Uh, you mean, does it, is it a bad deal for our economy? Absolutely, yeah. because it's holding us back from moving into clean energy where the world is going and where our economy should be going. So we're tying our own hands by taking handouts from an industry that, frankly, we've all just agreed collectively across the world has to end. We've agreed that we have to stop using coal and stop using gas and oil. So why are we doing this? And our, our campaign is very much about just shining a light on the fact that we're doing it all the time. We've been doing it for decades, uh, and it has led to a policy that is all about pro-fossil fuel policies and not about solving the problem of climate change or preparing our economy for what's next, which is clean energy. Well, I've read that you said that uh, politicians themselves are really polluted by the fossil fuel industry. How do you... Work that out. How do we um, figure why? out how much? Is no, no, why do you say they are personally polluted? You know, there's a kind of corruption involved mm. in this. Well, you know, when you start taking the handouts, and, and these were specific, you know, on, the, on paper and registered donations. The, the donations that don't get registered, the third-party donations, are significantly more. So our system is polluted by fossil fuel money. Uh, it is holding us back, and uh, you know, as we go into an election, we need to think about that and demand that people tell us, well, how much are you taking? Um, and we've put together a pledge that says, uh, will you pledge not to take fossil fuel money? So we know that uh, some, some of our potential MPs and elected officials um, will not take it, and, and we can support that. So we've just started this petition, and we've got about 11 people so far who've signed up uh, both current and previous elected officials, and we'll be pushing that between now and the time of the election. Can you tell us a bit more about the 11 who've signed on? Are they all in one party, or are they across the board? <laughs> well, needless to say, all of the Greens have signed on. <laughs> um, and then uh, a couple of the independents, which is great, uh, and a couple of previous um, politicians. But, you know, we've only just started really to push Labour and Liberals. I think we can kind of guess how this will go, but there are a few people that will surprise. Yeah. Um, and we're interested in just shining a light on that today and make that a, a real issue at, in every electorate where it's clear they will not sign the petition to let people know that 
this candidate of yours takes fossil fuel money, and that means one outcome, and that is support for more fossil fuels. Well, I think that's a brilliant campaign because it's a very embarrassing question for a lot of them. I remember I interviewed Mark Butler once, and I like him very much. He gives very straight answers. I think he's a very progressive man. But I asked him three times, you know, the fossil fuel question, the subsidy, the subsidy question. He mm. just slid around it. He answered another question that he he thought up himself. He didn't get to answering about the subsidies. I kept saying, again, I just have right, to ask you about exactly. the subsidies. Yeah, yeah. No one wants oh, to talk about it. Off he went and, on another uh, trip. The Minerals Council saying, you know, oh, this is a strong part of our democratic system. I mean, well, this is not democratic. This is buying people's support for a specific thing, which is more coal, more gas, and we know it has to end. So it's a direct conflict to our agreement in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, you know, an agreement and an understanding that we have to stop new fossil fuels, we have to keep it in the ground. Well, our um, New Zealand Prime Minister, he had an initiative to get people to sign up to have no more fossil fuel subsidies, didn't he? And I thought at the last minute Malcolm Turnbull mm-hmm. refused to sign that. Has there been any progress on that? No, you wouldn't be surprised, but no, <laughs> none yet. Um, we'll try and press as much as we can between now and the election. Mm. Um, you know, and it, it isn't that uh, there aren't some policies on uh, the part of some parties, but um, we feel that if you're taking money, you're setting an expectation that, that you're going to um, have the year of the fossil fuel industry and what you're then not hearing clearly is the message that we have to stop developing fossil fuels. So I think both parties, both of the two key parties, really have the same problem. There's, there's absolutely both are, you know, taking money. Um, it's not that there's an extraordinary amount in one and much less in the other. They have both absolutely been party to this for decades. Yeah. Um, and so it is now so inbuilt in our elected, you know, our, our democratic system um, that it is, I really believe it is the thing holding us back from moving on. Whereas elsewhere you see countries moving very quickly dealing with the problem, trying to address it in a way that will have the least impact on the communities that are going to have to make a change, um, and trying to minimize the cost of energy as we make the transition. That can't happen if we keep building more coal mines. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm starting to feel sorry for the government. I think they're being sort of held hostage because they're not making a very good deal out of this. The uh, fossil fuel companies are getting a lot more money back. And there was a cartoon in The Age the other day mm. for a Ross Gittins article. I don't know if you saw it. It was a great big lump of coal, huge, sitting on a sofa. <laughs> He'd squashed the sofa. <clears throat> he was as big as the room. He'd already smashed the house. Flames were coming from his head, and he was guzzling beer. And Malcolm Turnbull was a tiny little sort of person coming in from the kitchen with his top hat on serving him some more drinks on a tray and he looked so worried and so downcast and I wondered is your campaign really about liberating the government? Ah, that would be certainly a nice thing to do. We'd love to do that very much if we could and I, you know, I guess one of the things that's difficult to uh, enlighten people about is it just doesn't have to be this way. We're not saying, it's not as if the end of fossil fuels is the end of Australia's economy. But it is if you think that the only thing we can do is dig stuff on the, out of the ground, export it and burn it, you know. So that enlightenment has to come from the examples of what's being done overseas in countries around the world as they take rapidly to clean energy and see a growing and emerging economic and, and energy market. Um, so those people right now don't have that kind of money to throw around. Uh, in the same way, and they're small and they're not as organized. 
uh, and they're not the likes of a gigantic uh, fossil fuel company. Um, you know, the other thing we've really tried to shine a light on is the revolving door between staff members who often go from fossil fuel companies or lobbying groups and are suddenly in government offices as bureaucrats and, and or senior staff members. Um, you know, you, you have to look at that and wonder, is this holding us back? And the answer is yes. Right. Well, we've got time, any time for one more last question, um, Blair, and I'm going to ask you and then I'll ask the other two guests the same question. And the hero of 350.org is Bill McKibben, and he wrote, wrote an article called The Real Zombie Apocalypse. And he said the fossil fuel industry will fight any new laws or regulations coming out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And to short-circuit this, we have to fight like hell. He said we have to raise the political and economy pri economic price of any new infrastructure. So, Blair, can you go first and tell us, um, then I'd like to ask the other guests, what we can do to raise the political and economic price of feeding this fossil fuel industry? Yeah, I think, well, I think by and large the, the public gets it. So I think where we have to work hard is to hold our elected officials accountable to how they're going to answer our questions about why they're not preparing for our future. Um, and is this worth it? Is it worth it to take uh, subsidies from uh, and or donations from a fossil fuel company, from a dying industry, uh, at the expense of what is our necessary emerging approach to energy uh, I think it's going to take a lot. I think it's going to take um, a lot of, you know, post-Paris, two degrees with a discussion about 1.5 is great, but I think it's going to take a lot of us to get active uh, and to demand it, and it's going to be a, a painful process. Uh, but it's also a very unifying process, and we see every day more and more people coming to the movement to demand this change. and to be part of that effort to bring it about. Okay, thank you very much, Glenn. What do you think, Lynn? Well, I think it's about people being wised up to it. That the people, just as we've had that action around let them stay in baby Asher, and while I think they're still trying to wheedle out of it and centre it in Aru, they've had to pause, they've had to listen. And if we really get people to understand what it means, all the baby Asher's of the world are going to suffer. So... Um, Activity, anyone, any work you can do that's part of the awareness raising um, and the protests and the blockading and the, the artistic work, people are doing plays about um, climate change, all those things contribute to a raised awareness and a new paradigm about how we could be living, how we have to live. Okay. Deb? Um, I like the idea of seeing Australia as an absolute kind of um, setting, perfect setting for a showdown between future industries and, and dying ones because we are the mecca of both. We're the mecca of, of um, renewable energy as well as fossil fuels and we are the only developed um, world country that is still charging ahead trying to, um, you know, base its economy on, on dirty fuels. So... I think it's a pretty interesting narrative. We're supposedly educated. We are supposedly still a democracy. And it's, it's, I think as Blair was saying, and you know, Lynn too, you're shining the spotlight on the hypocrisy and the ways in which our leaders are willingly, knowingly, um, not just, um, avoiding what's in our best interests, but actually actively endangering us. 
and yeah it, it's going to take a bit of work but I think if we're really strategic and we bring in conversations like the Great Barrier Reef every French person for instance knew about the Great Barrier Reef and what we're doing mm. to it mm. so they'd like yeah, being strategic, finding what those iconic places are and their tipping points, you know, already have been, and really focusing on messaging. Okay. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank my guests tonight. That's been uh, Blair Polisi from 350.org, Lynn Bender, the psychologist, and Deborah Hart, who's the author of uh, Guarding Eden and the co-founder of Climb Acts. Just before we go, listeners, I have a couple of announcements for you. Following last week's story on the CSIRO cuts, there's a new report from the Climate Council called Flying Blind. You can just look that up, just uh, Climate Council, Flying Blind, Navigating Climate Change Without the CSIRO. They're obviously worked up about that, and as, as we are. You could find this and send it to any Liberal politician or your local MP. So that's an easy thing to do. Just find Flying Blind and uh, send it with a tiny message to your MP and say, look, we need the CSIRO. It's urgent that these cutbacks of climate scientists need to be reversed. I'd like to thank Jan, Jane for being on panel. Roger, who's behind the scenes doing the podcast. You can hear this program again tomorrow or tell people to listen to it tomorrow on the podcast at Beyond Zero Emissions. And we'll go out with a song from Ecopella. They sent this to me. They're a marvellous choir and this song is called Divest Divest from fossil fuels put your money to the test Divest from coal and oil for the future's sake Divest, move your super and your savings it's a powerful protest just make a tiny change and let the markets do the rest The only, the only course of action as far as flying is concerned is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take. And we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough. This is very hard for people to contemplate. Not least those people who have love miles. Now love miles is a phrase I came up with in writing this book which describes the distance between you and the people you love. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles with those people. And you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles. <laughs> and you're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them. And you understand what I'm talking about. And here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. 
it is also wrong to go there. And in climate change, we see the requirement for a whole new moral code.